arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Your Majesty, we have captured the Earth people. Was there any resistance? No, Your Majesty, except from the blonde giant. Why did you enter my kingdom? save you from your father. Your meaning? Your planet is rushing madly toward the Earth from which we came. Collision can mean only the destruction of both. There will be no collision. I control absolutely the movement of this planet. And I will destroy your Earth in my own way. Why destroy the Earth? Why not conquer it? How did you enter my kingdom? in a rocket ship of my own design. You are a remarkable man. I can use you. Take him to the laboratory, give him everything he requires except his freedom. That was the world of Buck Rogers produced in the early 20th century. You were listening to Ming the Merciless. Ming, portrayed by Charles Middleton. Ming the Merciless appeared in the Flash Gordon comic strip in 1934. Ming remained the villain throughout the entire gamut of Flash Gordon productions. The comic strip was first written and produced by Alex Raymond. Now Ming, Ming is genius level intellect and has access to incredible technology. He's a ruthless tyrant and he comes from the planet Mongo. I didn't sit down and resurrect Ming in all his glory in an alien form. All of Ming's attributes could be ascribed to Sard, the Vargadendus of the Creod realm. Sard brings the horrific and sadistic butchery to a new level. Sard is vile, but thrives and is enhanced by his evil deeds. There needs to be a villain in any action drama. Add in science fiction and the villain becomes more powerful and brutal. Here's episode one of the Suri F. Khan, the Soldier in series by Robert P. Fitton, beginning now. Chapter 70. He was the Vargat Emnus. His might pervaded the realm, and only loyal Creods were granted positions of power. With the new Mantari campaign, he risked defending the home planet as well as the surrounding defensive outpost. But it was his duty as a Creod to destroy the Tabun Shah and their Mantari descendants and obliterate all remnants of their existence from the Humea. The Tabun Shah would face every Azakar, freight barge, scanner, constructor Kraviak Azakars, and the movable vessel of the realm. He emerged quickly from the Thassian. Uta, when will we reach Karbala's speed? Sard wishes the Aragasta to lead this amperage. Karbala's speed in two desics, Vargademnus. Good, good. He studied the forward tacticals from the upper Isian. The Vastic, now commanded by Roik, paralleled the Aragosta within a mass of assorted Azakars. The Humea, depicted in a brilliant purple light, was dissected by Tark's diminishing yellow-dotted signal. What do you think, Elkin? Elkin was now seated in Sard's command chair. The new Vargat Garmin's matrices swung towards Sard. I have a new thought about Tark's signal. Sard wishes to hear your thoughts. 
I think Tark's signal may have originated in another location than is indicated. What do you suggest to Sard? Send smaller Pizikars at faster speed around the Humea Center to check the contact's place of origin before the entire amperage travels in an irrelevant direction. Sard will consider your request. You must find this Mantari Earth. Prepare battle-generated images, and we will be ready for the Tabun Shah. Huta, how many Wascoms have we produced? Huta displayed the long cluster Azakars with four side traction wheels. Sard modified this design after Gaga, providing a quicker side motion and greater shooter power while hovering off the ground. 5,250! Instruct the Kraviak Azakar that Sard demands 6,000 before he reaches Mantari Earth. It will be done, Vargad Emnus. And every Azakar will provide Sard with detailed provision lists. All three million Selvets will be equipped properly. Yes, Vargad Emnus. Sard turned his anchor, covered with a warming fabric and seated in a transport rester, entered the Icean. His voice was weakened by disease contracted on the home Merkham. Are you ready for the Tabun Shah? In the generated images, said Sard. Are you able to accompany Sard to the battle Azakar? In my younger reefs, this illness would have been fought and conquered. Now it lingers with my age. But I will watch the battle on my ossal Nakedom. Sard sat in a station rester across from his old friend. Sard must be prepared. The final battle with the Tabanshar is the only important battle. Sard now understands how to combat them. From Mantari Earth, he will find this Pequa passageway that his Awas speaks of. Tark will lead us to their home, Urkum, and we will bring our entire amperage to crush them. Such words must be grounded in realistic truth, Sard. Bringing the amperage into this passageway may be beyond our capacity. Sard's matrixes, Sard's matrixes dimmed. If Sard is able to accomplish this with the help of his Awas, he will arrive unnoticed and surprise the Tabanshah with all his power. And Sard will destroy their Urkum. The stars surrounded his Azakar. As he swung over the Aragosta's rusty hull, red cruising lights blinked. The massive shooter reserves produced an eerie green glow against the darkness of space. His Nikitim showed the vast amperage's disposition. He peered out the span and thought how the Aragosta had faced the Tabanshar in the past. The white cylinders containing the generated battle images floated parallel to the Aragosta in the gray starlight. Constant training was the only way to prepare his selvets for ground combat. He quickly docked the Azakar at the top portal and lowered the outside ramp. Selvets fell as he marched to the Thassian. He remained confident as he moved upward. Tark's messages convinced him he would finally locate the Tabun Shah. Within a short time, he emerged on the Icean. Generated battles raged on the many wide Nakedoms surrounding the circular Vargard Icean. Cluster Wascoms hovered and maneuvered across a seemingly real landscape as energy bursts destroyed enemy positions. This battle has flaws, said Sard, scanning the tacticals. A scample accuracy rating. 
An improvement, said Elkin. Sarat slowly scanned his matrixes toward Elkin. To fight the Taban Shah, Sard needs perfection. It will be done, Vargademnus. The passageway from Mantari Earth. The Rubicans tell me the inflated barges might work, but we are unsure of the passageway's composition. We can successfully float our salvets and equipment, but there are many unknowns. How do we gain entry and exit? How do we move on this passageway? Sardawas has spent many reefs alone on the inferior Urkum. Sard is convinced he knows the answers to the questions about this passageway. You may be correct, Sard. Yorawas's understanding as a Rupacon is unchallenged. Sard longs to see him again. Sard will go below now and join the battle. Sard placed, the, Sard placed the image helmet over his head, and the ground battle formed all around him. He strapped a large shooter over his shoulder and crossed the hardened soil as the smoke of battle drifted through the stuffy air. The cluster Wascom's silver rod spread as he moved inside. He positioned himself in the center rester and checked his shooter panels. Display inferior positions. The forward Nakedum was overlapped with a full-color terrain map designated to simulate the fortifications on the Ooklis ridges during the Battle of Galga. The high ridges and sloping hill were packed with inferiors inside sunken bunkers. Proceed to the fourth battle area. Merge with the second battle group. It will be done. Sard gripped the controls with anonymity, condensed the tactical and shut down the interior lights. He used the instruction he had received as a youth and wove erratically across the rock-strewn slope. A few shooter bursts impacted behind him. He located the source, a placement midway up the ridge. The entrenchment was clear when he magnified the placements on the tactical. Without the use of internal systems, he aligned his red beam pointers and fired. The explosion ripped apart the rocks and killed 62 Mantari. Seveen, what is the meaning of your actions? asked the battle proaska. Sard quickly brought his Wascom into position with the group along the slope, responding to enemy fire. Into line and wait dispositions. Sard's fangs moved downward. He would have replaced the battle proaska had he not shown his anger. Your orders, Battle Proaska. More inferior energy bursts dug up the slope. You will begin a circular assault on the main fortification. Let us see if your battle courage continues. Join the others in firing at the Mantari's secondary defenses. It's an alternate plan. Are you challenging me? Wascom should only be used as cover in this operation. Send your main assault force up the slope with mobile launch bursters. Perhaps you would like to lead such a force, leave the protection of your Wascom and show your courage as a Creon. Sard's upper lip quivered as he immediately opened the Wascom wall. Let the ground assault begin. Have it your way. I give you 25 salvas for your bold plan, and if you fail, you will be held liable and subject to yestic punishment. Sard did not answer as he peered through his visor. The silver uniform salvets appeared in the hazy darkness across the plain. He activated the helmet tactical. The inferiors were directing most of their fire towards the main Creod Wascom group across the plains. He turned as the salvets marched up the hill. Separate into three groups. Our mission is to destroy the main Pekri reserves on the ridge. We understand, said the leader of the salvets. 
Side looked back toward the hovering waskets positioned on the planes. Battle Pro Oscar, have your Waskums attack enemy positions as cover, but maintain your distance for your own protection. You will be judged on your plan. The Waskums rose upward, remaining secure in their position, and sprayed the ridge with green shooter bursts. Sard faced the Selvits and waved them up the slope. Arm your shooters! We will destroy this inferior position! Bursts from the ridge were directed at the Waskums as Sarad moved up the rocks ahead of the Selvits. The images of the inferiors along the ridge seemed real. He longed to fight these inferiors with his own graspers. Battle Pro Oscar, you may now bring down your Waskums over the ridge. Asked the Selvelt leader. Sard steered down the slope, wondering if the battle Proaska could comply with his request. Then he scanned back to the Selvets. When the Waskums rise over the ridge, we will take the inferior center position. The Waskums passed overhead, and Sard ordered the Selvets up the slope. Pequabrus continued from the main carry position. But the Waskums returned fire as Sard moved ahead of the Selvets over the rocks. Some of the Selvets hesitated, but most followed. He counted three shooter reserves from his position behind the rocks. As he turned to his Selvets, a strong shooter burst knocked him from the rocks. He steadied himself and shouted into his helmet, Prepare yourself for the experience! Glory to the realm! With his fangs exposed, Sard removed his Westick and charged the Mantari inside the thicker bunker walls. Several inferiors fell back as he vaulted the surface and thrust his Westick through an inferior's midsection. The Red Saurian ignited his hatred further as his Selvets joined him at the wall. Sard unleashed a brutal Westick demonstration upon the inferiors. Body parts splattered across the wall and dirt floors. Shooters deployed! The resulting Pequaburus sent the inferiors scurrying down the tunnel. A cheer sounded as Sard smacked his tactical button. This is Sard. His contact with the Brattle Priasca was first met with silence. Your tactical assault was lacking in planning. And you have failed to take aggressive action. You will face the Yestic on the Aragostas Ison. The frequency was open for some time. Bargain. Inferiors must never be given the opportunity to attack. You will report to the Icene at once and receive your humiliation. It will be done, Bargadimnus. Sard, said Elkin, overriding the frequency. Did you witness Sard's attack, Elkin? I did. Your aggression is unmatched, but I have news. Sard removed his helmet and stood alone in the imaging room. What news do you have for Sard? contacted us with a second and third message from Mantari Earth. Sod will return to the Aragosta. This is a glorious day for the realm. Let us cross the Humea to Mantari Earth. Chapter 71 Sard leaned forward and listened to his ossos fram. This is Tark. I have passed my 11th orbit of Mantari Earth around its yellow Azoth. I fear the Zircom may destroy itself with our dark weapon. Division abounds everywhere on the Zircom. Although the two competing groups hold most of the Azark weapons, to use such weapons against their own kind shows a remarkable lack of destiny as a race. 
truly inferiors. Using the Mantari power source below the Zircum, I have suspended a crabble from my Nakedum, and Pequaflow has been transmitted without their connections. It is my goal to make these inferiors dependent upon me for their Pequaflow. Although they burn fuels taken from below the surface, they risk altering the atmosphere of the Zircum. In this reef, they orbit contact devices around the Urcum. These inferiors have begun to travel at the edge of the Humea. Contact exists through wireless sound, and odd images have been generated by their primitive Nakedums. These beings are self-absorbed and weak. They can easily be seduced and overrun. When I have made progress, I will use my Fram again. Long live the realm! The message is many reefs old, said Elkin. He is a brilliant Rubicon. He may conquer this inferior Urkum without the aid of an amperage of Selvig Force. What worries me is the general location of Mantari Earth. More signals have compacted rapidly as we approach. The contact is imaged on the Nikitum. Siren is activating the Nikitum. Here it is. Tark, wearing yellow coverings, was alone in front of a small Icean's flashing lights and surrounded by a rock-lined cave. He sat on the Icean counter, near a Nakedum screen. I would hope the realm might retrieve this message. In the past messages I have related traveling over a Mantari-constructed ocean between Urkum. Never have I marveled at such a feat. The ocean appears as a liquid, but contains curious pequel levels. The vessel is powered by swiftly moving conveyors, and I wonder if these inner fields can be duplicated. They call each Urkham orbit on Mantari Earth a year, and count them from the birth of a Mantari Sia. 1,968 orbits have elapsed since the Sia's birth. The Urkham is plagued with war, unrest, and killing of leaders. Azaric weapons were almost used five of their years ago would have resulted in the death of millions of inferiors. The spread of these weapons has not stopped. I am very much shielded on the ground should they destroy themselves. I have successfully completed a Pequa beam from this altered Pequa source under the Urkum. I will not be ready to contact the leaders of the Urkum for many reasons, but I will lure them up here by transmitting the Pequa flow without their crude metal connections. Then I will begin the control. Long live the realm. Sard stood upright when the contact ended. Tark's mind will subdue the inferiors, and he will travel across the Humea Passageway. Sard, there is a problem. I wanted to wait until you were finished, said Elkin. Sard will return to the Aragosta now. It's Anka. He's dead. His last words, according to the Selvets, Ask that you destroy the Tabun Shah. Sard's fangs were fully extended. Sard will carry out his orders, and the realm will reign supreme in the Humea. In the portal base, Sard stood before every selvet on the Aragosta. The front Varget formation surrounded a polished metal cluster containing Anka's remains. His old friend would soon sail forever among the Azos. His extolling Anka's life did not reflect weakness, but only facts. Any further contemplation and feelings would remain private. He placed his graspers around the cluster and walked to the outside portal locks. 
The doors opened and he set the cluster inside the projection tube. He closed the tube and backed away from the portal. He slowly ordered the doors closed. The lighting dimmed and the Nakedims focused onto the tube. Slowly the air gushed out of the locks. The outside portal doors slid open and the tube moved into the Azor's smatted sky. Once a short distance from the Aragosta, the tube opened and the cluster brightened in the Azos light as it spun through space, with Anka's remains when a part of Sarad's own lifespan. In tribute, the Aragosta's warning blazon sounded as Salvets marched behind Sard and the Vargets from the bays. When they reached the Thassian, he requested Elkin accompany him to the Isian. The red light swirled around Elkin's matrixes. The realm owes anchor a debt that can never be repaid. Sard will repay it in Mantari Sorin. I suppose that is true, said Elkin as they rose. Sard wishes to know if you have imaged the voyage across the Mantari passageway. Elkin scanned him a moment before replying. We have tried the simulations. What your Awas describes cannot be simulated. An ocean of Piqua, the Rupacons do not understand it. Tark will understand. Assume we know how to traverse that sea. Moving everything will surprise the Tabanshar on the other Urkum. They will never expect this type of attack. Nor will their Suri of Karn. This talk of the Suri of Karn bores Sard. He will take them as they hesitate, and then rid them from the Humea for all time. You have control of the realm, Sard. The Tabanshar remains hidden. We risk a great deal by crossing this unknown sea. You question, Sard. I only want what is best for the realm. Then, Elkin, said Sard as they arrived at the Asian. You will not question Sard again. Chapter 72 Finally, after the many orbits around this Azos, I have two inferiors with me today. Sard, although relieved another contact had finally arrived from Tark, was astonished to see Inferius standing with his Awas in the underground cave. A larger Mantari in an odd brown uniform stood next to a deformed creature in a transport rester. Sard would have killed them all. You will use them, said Elkin. The seated Mantari has been injured. His name is Allsworthy, and he was highly placed on this Urkum. I have plans to work with him to construct the means to send generated Piqua flow signals around the Urkum. I also plan to control all input into the Mantari Nakedums on the Urkum. To do this, I will use Mundy, a Selvit, to Allsworthy. He controls Rubicons and materials and has access to leaders. The Mantari on this Urkum call themselves humans, but are still descended from the Taban Shah. The Inferiors do not understand Sarad's Awas' language, and they do not have the intelligence to construct translators. Huge amounts of Piqua flow have been liberated from this Urkum's natural sources. They will be seduced to give up their organic fuels. Inferior! yelled Sarad. He banged the table and spoke into the fram. Break! Yes, Fargard Emnus. Sarad wishes you to ready the best diesel car. For an immediate flight, plot arrival time at Sark Harborless Speed to Mantari Earth. It will be done, Vargadimnus. I have also begun my work simulating.
manipulating not only the images on the Nakedoms, but creating the illusion of reality. I will fabricate the inferiors and things that never were to seduce them. But this work proceeds slowly. Long live the realm. Long live the realm. Repeated Sard as the contact ended. Elkins stared at him. Sard, who will volunteer in the Pisicar at such a speed? Sard will arrive ahead of the Amperage. We cannot risk your being killed. Sard will meet his hours and prepare to cross the passageway. Elkin was not alone in his opposition against Sard making the separate Pisicar flight to Mantari Earth. While no one would openly challenge Sard, he heard undercurrents. They feared for his safety at such high speeds. But Sard wondered how long Tark would carry out his charade against the inferiors, and he deemed it essential for preparations to begin to invade across the passageway. According to his Proascas and the Portal Bay Iceans, the Pizikar was ready for travel across the Humea. As he leaned away from the Pizikar opening, Elkin moved into the open bays. Sard is pleased you have not defied what he has done. The Pizikar is ready. I feel you understand the risk of such high speed, Varganimnus, nor do I feel I have the means to stop you. That is wise, and Sard has no intention of dying. The high speeds are risky. Sard will not die, nor will he worry about such things. But he will arrive to help Tark. Before the Aragoster and the Amperage reaches Mantari Earth, we will be ready for passage against the Tabanshar. Bringing such large Azakars onto an Urkum and through a passageway may not be possible, Vargademnus. We may have to travel by conventional means and find Tabanshah's home Urkum. Sard's matrixes dimmed. He looked away and contemplating searching the skies for the Urkum. Reefs could pass and we may never find the Urkum of Tabanshah. With this passageway, the realm has an opportunity. I look forward to your arrival, Elkin. Sard reached into the Pizikar and lifted the helmet over his head. The tactical's bright readings danced in the upper corner helmet Nakedums. Elkin and the upper bay Isian were shaded through the visor. Elkin fell to his knees. May you have the fate of the ancient Emnus and the richness of the Humea be yours. Rise. Sard will be victorious. He will find the Tabanshar, and the greatness of the realm will be complete. He turned and studied the long black Pizikar. Sard is ready for departure. Pizikar is operational, said Roik from the Upper Isian. Sard scanned his face as well as the other Selvits and Proascas gathered along the rails. Sard does not deny the journey he faces is without risk. If he does not survive, Elkin will continue the journey to Mantari Earth. The Tabanshah must be found and conquered. Sard cannot lose any more time. He turned to Elkin. Do you understand, Elkin? Yes, Barganemnus. Sard dipped his head below the opening and crawled into the small Apisakar Isian. Hunched over, he positioned himself in the center rester, surrounded by smaller Nakedums and panels. On the screen, Roik stood with Huta and the others in the Portal Bay's Isian. Roik fell to his knees when he realized Sard had scanned him on the Nakedum screen. You will be victorious, Vargademnus! Sard pushed several buttons and the Pizikar portal was slowly sealed. His matrixes adjusted to the lower light as he stared at the portal doors. 
are sanctioned for movement to the portal lock, Spargadimnus, said Huta. Side is ready. He was now filled with the same exhilaration of battle as the control beams brought the tiny Pizikar toward the sliding portal doors. Anka's cluster now spinning into infinity filled his thoughts as he stared at the inside of the portal locks. The bolted window span showed a few bright Azores. He activated a full view of the Humea on the forward screen, and the tactical of his course to Mantari Earth was depicted on the lower screens as a broken yellow line across the purple space. Travel in the Pizikar was estimated at 100 times faster than Karbala speed, yet such speed required conditions in an accurate steady course. The shadows of the portal doors cut across his silver suit as the Pizikar rolled inside. Portal locks are ready to be equalized, said Elkin, now in the Icean with the others. Sard hears you. The doors rumbled shut. With the darkness, the panel's orange and yellow Nakitum lights glowed brighter. The air rushed back into the bays and the Pizikar drivers gently hummed. Below him, the outer portal doors retracted and the Pizikar, with a slight bump, floated into space. For a short time, it drifted from the Aragosta's darkened hull. On the rear Nakitum screen, the fully charged shooter reserves glowed in the belly of the Azakar. Cabin lights were bright in the starry darkness as the Pizakar's drives now revved loudly. He watched as he moved away from the Aragosta. Preparing for increased speed, Vargadimnus, said Elkin. Sard hears you. May the glory of the realm be with you forever. Long live the realm. The Aragosta blurred and Sard realized the contact signals would cease with the increased speed. Communication now would only involve interception of Tark's incoming contact. His body was pushed against the Pizikar rester. The driver's sound levels shook the vessel. Forward sweep fields extended along the Pizikar's course, and as the Azores formed lines blurred across his Nikitum, he realized his amperage was already far away. He rode the initial acceleration with his graspers gripped on the stabilizers, but did not dare to switch anything to his own control. The acceleration would continue for almost a desic. His mind was set on finding the Tabun Shah, and enduring the increasing speed was a trade Sard accepted easily. Chapter 73 both John and Loftus shielded their heads with fabric turbans in the hot sun atop of the Camino. Loftus panned the long sand slopes, dotted with occasional rocks and scrub brush. The landscape had not changed in the 57 days since they had passed through the garrison doors. The sacks of grain had shriveled and water was limited to a single half-filled wire-bound barrel. Loftus licked his cracked lips never changes this land. Where's the Nezcrans? John held the reins and looked toward the horizon. That night the stars tell me we are moving in that general direction. Loftus looked over his shoulder at the flattened grain bag. When I think we can continue to limit our intake, I worry about the Guampus. We will run out of food unless we reach the Nezcrans soon. I only know this journey from long ago and from the stories. I had a full caravan of supplies when I traveled. We must speak with the Eskers, convince them of the impending attacks, and find Abisha. And what will they do? asked John. I don't have answers. I only trust that Tabin Shah will make it happen. 
Loftus's Bunshoff briefly cut the light into a small arched rainbow in the late afternoon sunlight. Somehow, this will lead me to Tabun Shah. You speak as if you have already seen Tabun Shah. No, I only understand where they take me. He gazed to the tan dunes in the distance. Another barrier. Dunes, I do not remember dunes. John slowed the guampus when the Camino swerved in the sand. I know this is the right direction. Mountains border the Nezcran. I remember riding from the dry land toward the blue mountains in the distance. Loftus handed the smaller water container to him. We have to be sure before we travel over the sands. I'll check the stars again tonight, he said, choking on the water. He cleared his throat. Perhaps the climate has dried since I passed through this way. Loftus took in the water and climbed from the Camino onto the hot sands. He raised his fingers to his temples and resonated. With his eyes closed, his mind focused on the strong feelings. The journey may be hard, but we will survive. What do we say to the Eskers, or even to the Tolton? We will say the right thing, I'm convinced of that. I have never resonated, said John. You will not resonate until you are ready. I was a man, John, who trusted no one, believed in nothing other than taking chances and having the thrill of adventure. But now I have a destiny beyond my control. I believe that, and I trust that what you say will come to pass. John continued to stare into a sky laden with star patterns Loftus did not recognize. Loftus was concerned by the Guampus's swollen hoofs. Continuing across the hot sands in the morning would only worsen that swelling. What do you see? The stars tell me we are very close. I do not even know why I haven't seen the mountains. So we are on course. Yes, exactly. Good, because the Guampus won't make it much further, and we need water. Are we 10 miles, 15 miles? No more than 50 miles. We should see the mountains from the dunes tomorrow. They walked along the Camino and leaned against the carved wheel. I have trouble fathoming from where I have come. I know the passageway changed time and space, but I still long to be back on Earth. He followed the star trail high above the desert. I would go back to Appleton if I could, John. Why did you leave? Most men aren't driven the way I was driven. I needed the adventure and had to prove myself in the Panthers. The most elite division of the service. It was. Maybe something else drove me, something from my early years that I was not aware of until I had the dreams. John pressed his lips and continued looking skyward as he spoke. DeLuca and I had a long talk with Mother at Bathurst. When DeLuca first told me about Altashar and the passageway, I didn't believe it. Neither did I, but it's true. He lifted the bunshaw. Look at this. Molded from antiquity is clear, seamless, a seamless piece to unlock the secrets of Tabun Shah. He stroked his heavy beard and let his mind drift. Yes, I would go back to Appleton, build another cabin in the hills and just disappear, live away from the city and the confusion. I'm afraid that land is in another time and place. Loftus's face tightened. My time with your mother is in the past. She thought she would never see you again. I had so much to say. 
and squinted at the stars. I only wish I could have talked with her again once, once, that's all. Maybe someday you will. Chapter 74. He shuffled on foot for days after the Guampus collapsed. The water in his container barely swished along the sides as he slid through the towering dunes burning sand. The wind pelted his face with tiny stinging grains and the constant sizzling sun tracked him from the cloudless sky. John motioned him slowly to the top of the dune. His raspy voice was barely audible through the winds. The mountains! Loftus compressed his sun-scorched skin. In the wavy heat rising from this dune sea, a crisp purple mountain range rose from the horizon. He could only speak in a whisper now. It has to be twenty miles, maybe more. My legs are weakening, said John, steadying himself on Loftus' shoulder as the wind whipped the sand. Loftus kept his head angled against the sandstorm as he talked. I know my side is ripped. It's ripped apart. It's so damned hot. I figure it could be a couple of days, Tom. He faced John in the sand, pinged his face. Listen, if one of us goes, the other has to continue. No need for both of us to die. Agreed, said John, pulling the turban down to his bleached eyebrows. The wind howled as he pointed toward the mountains. This way! Loftus' eyes were clamped with sandy edges, and sometimes he stared at the ground as he trudged forward. His boots dug into the hot sand with every step, and the heated grains fell back over his bare ankles. The skin across his face was stretched over with blisters bordering open cake cuts on his parched lips. For at least an hour he had trailed John, outlined in the wavy heat ahead but now more steep dunes were spread before the mountains. His voice was squelched by the dryness in his throat. Imperceptibly, he slipped and found himself face down in the sand. He spit the crunchy sand from his mouth and stumbled back to his feet. His hands burned as he lifted the empty water skin to his lips and then chucked it down the sandy slope. Taking small steps, he crested the dune. John lay on his back twenty yards down to the far side. Loftus cascaded down but lost his balance, rolled and hit the dune hard. When he opened his eyes, John was a few feet behind. Loftus sifted the hot grains through his fingers as the sand pummeled the skin around his turban and he drifted out of consciousness. When he finally lifted his head, his feet were partially buried. Rolling to the left, the blazing sun cut into his eyes, but he managed to pull his feet out of the sand. He breathed quickly as he sat up. John's shoulder and arm were submerged under the dunes. He tensed his forearms and crawled forward. Adrenaline kicked in as he scooped out the mound over John's shoulder. We have to go to the Nezcrans. When John did not stir, Loftus clasped his wrist. His son babbled as Loftus pulled him along the sand. It's over. Loftus thrust his hands under John's arms. No, no, I won't give up. Too hot, no water. Loftus growled as he hoisted John up. His blistered lips cracked and stung. John muttered as Loftus dragged him up the next dune. He pushed his feet onto the sands and saw the stretch of dune waves extending to the purple hills. Help me! Help me! 
Loft has fought to keep his balance. Where was Tabanshah? With each forced step across the loose sands, he wondered if Tabanshah was a mere illusion, the work of the mind's rationalization of life. He trudged within an all-encompassing pain, convinced he would die with his son in the desert. John's limp body was his last link to Kath. He traversed the dune with his eyes closed, amazed at his own stamina. John lay twenty feet behind him in the sand. Loftus slipped as he backtracked and held John's shoulders. The nest grants John over the next, next. Nothing mattered now except scaling the next dune. He grabbed John's wrists again but could not hoist him up and had to drag his son's body in spurts across the sands. He pulled and stopped, closed his eyes and resonated to find the land he had just visualized. The Nezcrans was just over the top, but when he yanked on John's wrist, he lost his footing and careened back. He was cognizant of each crash against the sand, but felt nothing as he lay motionless and lost his thoughts. He was not sure whether he was still moving as everything brightened around him. An evolving image formed across a flat area. The outlines of the rectangular pool he had envisioned in the morgue materialized, as did the familiar pale white slab below a thick patch of stars. The green pool, perfectly smooth, now mirrored the stars as crisp as a clear winter's night. He had not noticed a bunshaft towering over the far end. For whatever reason, he was compelled to approach and climb that bunshaft. The sky lightened to a brightened blue with clouds puffy over the horizon. The coolness of a clear mountain pool, shielded within the brown rocks and fed by a small trickling waterfall, encompassed his arm. He cupped his hand and sucked the cold water down his raw throat. After a coughing burst, he took in more liquid. John was sprawled on the rocks only a few feet away. Loftus used his hands again and sprinkled the water over John's beard and hair. His son stirred, but his eyes remained closed. Loftus took in more water for himself. John! His son's glassy eyes slowly opened and he scanned the upper rocks. Where? I don't know. I was on the dune and you were behind. More water. Loftus poured more water into John's mouth. John gripped his wrist. His moist blue eyes shifted toward the waterfall as he spoke in a whisper. Tell me this is a dream. It's no dream, said Loftus, bracing his hands on the rocks. I don't know what we're doing here, but if we've reached the Nezcrans, we can find the Eskers, and we can search for Abishar. I remember nothing. John, he leaned toward his son. I was traveling up the dunes, resonating to Tabanshah. That's the last thing I remember. Then he thought about his vision under the stars. No, no, wait. I was in a dream, or maybe it was real, along a rectangular pool with the same white slab from the passageway. I was under the stars, and at the end was the Bunshaft. You saw it too. I did. You wanted to climb the Bunshaft. You kept telling me you had to climb it. Loftus nodded, and he pictured the Bunshaft again. Something inside that structure. Maybe Tabunshah. I don't know. Are they gods? Advance, but I don't know. Resonation is like praying, said John, wincing as he pushed himself up. Maybe just communication, said Loftus. Why would they hide? What is the reason? 
Loftus shrugged his shoulders. Maybe time has no meaning for them. They must have knowledge of a larger picture. John tried smiling through his torn lips. With you as the Syriac Khan. Maybe. He held his own bunch off as he struggled to his feet. Across the valley was clear evidence of a city within fluffy green foliage. A massive dome protruded from the treetops and tiny houses lined the dirt roads. He thought he saw a guampus-drawn cart near the river. The key to all of this is the Eskas, and I will bet money that that dome building in the center of the city is the Noma. They will know the word of the Seba. They will know what we need to do. Chapter 75 As morning broke, they were renewed with the fruits and berries along the cliffs. After lingering in the clear water, they were able to travel again. Loftus opted to parallel the tumbling waterfalls down the cliffs. The widening falls' soft mist provided a soothing refreshment. Hours later, they munched on more food on a rock overhang adjacent to a cataclysmic water surge capped by a rainbow within the overhead spray. Ever been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, we went up there once when I was nine. Nothing like this. I missed all that with you. He threw the large yellow fruit he was eating over the edge. Loftus placed his hand on John's shoulder and then scanned the village only a few miles distant below the cliffs. More buildings were apparent near the spires and the streets crowded near a central square. I'm sorry. Don't be, Tom. Let's go. They veered away from the falls on a trail leading into a dense forest at the base of the cliffs. The enormity of the falls was visible through breaks in the trees and tons of crashing water sent a continuous rumble throughout the woods. Not until late afternoon did they encounter a small caravan of white fabric wagons pulled by small aguampus along a packed dirt road winding through the towering trees. Loftus approached a dark bearded man in a paisley blue shirt, baggy red pants, and expressed his desire to travel to the city. The man had a mellow accent. You mean Epoch, he said, looking over their wrinkled clothes and tanned skin. You have been in the great desert. We have. He did not elaborate further. Can we ride in your caminos? What part of Epic? The inner or the outer? He asked as several more men approached. They wish to travel to Apac. Then load them, said an older man, stout with short gray hair. We cannot be delayed any longer. Climb inside the camino, said the bearded man as the others returned to their caminos. Loftus thanked him and they reached for the support pole. The outer epic borders the sea and the inner. The inner, asked Loftus, smiling. Find a space between the supplies. Loftus pulled John up and they sat between huge grain sacks and a number of thin wood barrels. He rested his head against the softer grain sack as the guampus brought the wagon forward. In his mind, he rehearsed what he would say to the Eskas in this land where Taban Shah was openly worshipped. More than finding Abashar, he dreamed of returning to the Ascrans and tracking down Kath. He closed his eyes and fell into a light sleep as the Camino rocked through the woods. Tom, wake up. Loftus heard people talking and the sound of Guampus hooves clicked against a solid surface. He slowly opened his eyes to a series of bright torches along a thick block walls. People walked briskly along the streets. He sat up. 
John turned in the Camino. This place dwarfs the mead. Looks like Earth during the Renaissance. He pan the city. We're near what looks like the Noma. It's across the square. Probably a central point, said Loftus as he crawled to the edge. Arched open shops extended along the immediate walls, but fanned out into a gray cobblestone square several acres wide. He was drawn to the massive blue dome building below the upper twisted spires. The white slabs matched the passageway construction. How did they get that material? Good question. I wonder if this thing connects to the passageway, said John. I find it significant that the Noma is the largest building here. I never understood how the Tolton and the Mead were so backward. He couldn't control this place. The driver moved around back. We have arrived in the Enclave. Loftus looked over the back rail and stepped onto the cobblestones. You mean the square? Yes. John stepped next to him. We thank you for the ride into the city. And we wish you luck in your ventures here. Good fortune to you. Is that the Noma? asked Loftus, pointing across the enclave. The driver checked the wheel spokes as he nodded. The Noma, of course, he smiled. But you must remember your place. What do you mean? The driver raised his bushy brows in the torchlight. Oh, you will find out soon enough. Loftus gazed across the cobblestones to the dome several hundred feet up in the night. The wide white stairs reminded him of the more prodigious stairway from Bathurst. I know what you're thinking, said John. What's that? You think you're going to walk inside that Noma and they're all going to come running out to greet you. Loftus grinned as they started across the enclave. You don't think there'll be a party in our honor? With you, I'm beginning to wonder. Loftus stared at the torch-lit stairway under the thick, smooth columns and facade. It was similar to all those massive federal buildings in Washington, D.C., but this was the largest building in the city. The absence of guards or anyone present outside was odd. His mind was taken, as if he were in deep resignation. I feel a strong presence here. He gazed upward again as he climbed the stairs. This is a holy place, a sacred area. I think of that line from Shelley, the awful shadow of some unseen power floats through unseen among us. You feel something? Yes, I do. The columns were not as smooth as he thought. Intricate carvings were etched in the white surface in the pediments above. When he reached the main building, he ran his fingers over the figures of men in battle helmets and shields. Hooded robed figures with wide sashes were carved along the upper moldings, but flickering in the light above the weathered doors, unmistakable renderings of spaceships faced other etchings on the pediment. Ta-Bun-Sha. A whole religion revolving around a lost civilization, said John. Loftus sensed goosebumps crawling up his arms. The depiction of robed beings looked over the enclave. The lost ones. This place looks closed for business, said John. He moved up to the door and pulled on the rusted handles. It's locked. Along the slab, Loftus slowly raised his fingers to his temples. John followed his example and they sat in front of the doors. Loftus saw no vivid visions, but he did feel a pervasive reassurance. For several minutes, he remained in the meditative state, 
and when he opened his eyes, he focused on the upper white stone carvings, a crisp sculpture of a creod, image closely resembling Tark, hovered over a Mantari warrior. A voice echoed along the portico. Why are you here? Loftus looked up the pillars and toward the square. Are we at the Noma? Of course this is the Noma. You are Ashens. We have traveled far to reach this place, said Loftus, still not sure of the voice's location. Are you of the Semta? The what? I clearly understand that you are not of the Semta. John looked back at the doors. Are there a select group of people who enter the Noma? The Semta have been chosen. All others are Ashens. Ashens do not worship or read the saber within the Noma walls. But we are not from the Nezkrans. I must go. Wait! The saber was meant for everyone. After a long silence, he paced the portico. In the morgue, we read the saber. He heard movement inside. One of the huge doors cranked open and a short man with thin hair stood in a red and yellow robe embroidered with the likeness of a Mantari warrior in the center fabric. The Tolton sends his prisoners to the morgue, but no one crosses the great desert. Worshipping Tabanshar is a crime in the Askrans, said Loftus. The man's dark eyes were fixed on them both. He snapped his fingers and several guards, clad in black armor fit to the body and mesh cage helmets, surrounded them. Their serrated hooked spears formed a sharp wall. The man in the robe stepped onto the slab. I am Gerald. Are you an Esker? asked Loftus, studying the blade's faceted contour near his abdomen. No, I am a Tendra. I serve the Eskers. You are both tattered. Time in the great desert, said Loftus. You will accompany us inside the Noma. He moved closer to Loftus and lifted the bun shaft into his hand. I have come to learn that it is etched with the tenets of the saber. Etched for those who believe, said Gerald. Yes, yes, this is true. From afar he comes, the battles he has seen and the triumphs won and lost. He wears the key to the past, and now receive him. Do not bring him scorn. From the second millennium, said Loftus. Gerald squinted his brown eyes. You come with me, both of you. They followed him onto a shiny white tiled floor. The smaller stone foyer led to a longer corridor a few hundred yards long. Marble and rough gray statues watched over the corridor's length like sentries at the gate. Extended gold frame murals painted with vibrant colors realistically depicted battle scenes from the Saber. They reached a domed rotunda several minutes later. A stone retaining wall boarded a garden with a trickling waterfall over the rocks. Gerald said nothing as he disappeared through an open doorway behind more statues. Why the Semta? asked Loftus, inching his way to one of the statues. The Venus hands and fingers were human, and the eyes looked intensely outward. I don't understand why everyone can't worship. This is as bad as the Tolton, said John. Well, these Eskis had better understand, and I only speak from what I feel in my heart, that this planet is doomed unless I find Abishah. 
I only trust that what you say is true, said John. How this can be accomplished is beyond me. I can feel it will happen. Geralt smiled as he stepped around the statues. You will be given food and quarter to recover from your encounter in the desert. Any time in the great desert is not pleasant. We appreciate your efforts, said Loftus. Gerald nodded slightly and motioned them down the next corridor. No one crosses the great desert without the help of Taban Shah. I have spoken to the Gueshan, intermediaries between the Eskers and the Tendra. You will be received by the Eskers tomorrow. You and your Bunshoff have aroused their curiosity. I have important questions. You will have that opportunity, said Gerald, walking beside them. Food trays and glass plates were set on long tables near more gardens and a steamy pool bubbled beyond. Gerald held the edges of a smooth white rope extending to the ceiling. If you should desire anything, please pull on this rope. We are in your debt. Gerald again stared at the Bunshaf. I feel it may be we who are in your debt. Everything comes full circle with the alien Sard traveling to Earth, one of the Mantari planets, where he is again reunited with his brother, who has subjugated humanity. With the help, I might say, of Colonel Harmon Mundy and Nathan Allsworth. At this time, Loftus crosses the Great Desert to find his destiny with Tabern Shah. Join me next time for episode two of The Story of Khan by Robert P. Fitton in the Sojourn series. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.